Amen. Amen. Epiphany Brooklyn, how y'all doing today? Y'all doing all right? Good, good, good. It's good to be here. Always enjoy being able to come and spend some time with you guys on a, on a Sunday, see familiar faces, brothers in, in, in the Lord, Daryl, and um, some others. I, who, where, who else I'm seeing? No? Nobody else? Okay. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I love all y'all. No, for real. Um, good to be here. Thank you, Pastor Brandon. Um, you know, it's not easy to, to let other people preach in your pulpit because it's a bunch of nonsense going on in pulpits these days. Amen, somebody. Um, <laughs> Um, but I'm going to go ahead and preach today and get on out your way. So if you would, stand with me, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want to shout out my wife who's not here. Um, I don't know what you got on, baby, but I'm sure you look good. Somebody tell her I said that so I get some brownie points when I get home. Amen, brothers trying to teach y'all right now, but nobody listening. First um, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. amen. You need some time, say hold on. Hold on. All right. All right. All right, let's jump, let's jump in. I'm going to read it in your hearing. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that As you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we have also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. I'm just going to tag our text for today. God won't do it without you. God won't do it without you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful and grateful for your word uh, because in your word there is life and life abundantly. The truth of your word is ever present for us to read um, and hear and not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word also so that we might be made more and more into the image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, this morning you have a word for us today. You have instruction for us today. So we pray that we would be able to learn and know how we should live so that we can know how to please you. And so, Father, we pray this day that your name would be glorified and that your people would be edified by your word. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, uh, you know, my, my dad was a mechanic. Um, and me and my dad didn't really have a lot in common because he was really into cars and I was more into sports. Uh, and, it, it, and it always kind of weirded me out because my dad is from Queens, New York. And I, somebody from Queens, okay, amen. Go ahead, rep, go ahead and rep Queens, I see you, I see you. But my dad was from Queens and, and you know, this idea of Queens and being a hoodlum but loving NASCAR was just foreign to me. I mean, culturally, that just doesn't connect. So I don't know where that kind of, I don't know where his love for cars and like NASCAR and drag racing and all that stuff like came to be. 
But because I love sports and he loved cars, we didn't have a lot of common ground in terms of interests. And so oftentimes when I was young, he would be out there working on his car or working on my mom's car. And, you know, he would invite us out to come learn and see what he was doing and, and, and try to kind of pick up some helpful tasks or, or some helpful knowledge for later in life. Brothers, I'm telling you right now, uh, you need to learn how to change the oil or, you know, you know, rotate the tires or something. Ladies, I don't hear no amens. You missed your blessing. But, but you know, it'll save you some money. It'll save you some money later on in life. But, but e- either way, you know, I never paid attention while my dad was talking until I got my own car in high school. And my car would break down or I would need to fix it. And I would try to go out there and I didn't fully know what I was doing. So I would have to call for his help. Dad, man, I'm trying to do this. Can you come out and help me? Like, and so he would come out, faithful, loving dad, you know, come out, look at my car. He'd pop the hood open. You know, we jacked the car up, get underneath the, the engine and, and try to figure out what we were doing. And eventually I would get bored. And so I would either fake like I had to go to the bathroom and, and end up in the house just watching TV for too long. Or I would just pick up a basketball that was in the driveway and start shooting around while he's working. And eventually I would always hear the same thing. It would sound something like this, boy... You asked me to come out here and help you with your car, so why am I the only one doing the work? Now, the funny thing about that is sometimes that's how we interact with God. There is this expectation when we call God in for help that God is just going to do it without any activity on our own. Like God is just going to show up and make us mature Like God is just going to show up and deliver us from sin. Like God is just going to show us and save us from our problems without you doing absolutely anything. We find ourselves here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Paul has a very uh, interesting relationship with this group of believers, these Christians at Thessalonica. It's interesting uh, because if you read over in Acts chapter 17, when he gets to Thessalonica, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, and begins uh, debating with them about the Messiah. And the Bible says that there were a great number of people of high standing, of men and women who got saved and trusted Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that happened was some of the Jews didn't like this message of the gospel that Paul was spreading. And so they went and got some thugs from the from the inner city, right? The marketplaces, my translation, the inner city. But they went and got some thugs, brought them to the synagogue and caused a riot. And what happened was they drove Paul out of the city. They drove Silas out of the city. And usually what would happen was when Paul planted a church, he would spend some time there developing leaders, making disciples, growing them from infancy to maturity, teaching them the things of God and how to lead and how to establish a community of God's people, giving them an identity of what it looks like to gather. And Paul got to do none of those things because he was driven out. And yet we get here in chapter one, and Paul is extremely encouraged because he says that despite the severe persecution that broke out against you, when you first trusted Christ, you have stand firm. You have remained faithful. And not only have you remained faithful, but in the very next verse, he says that other people, other surrounding countries are hearing about your faith and they are trusting Christ and growing as well. That you have stood so strong in the midst of difficulty, in the face of opposition, being young Christians, that people are hearing about your story and they're wanting to know more about God. That's a great place to be. And so he was Paul was greatly encouraged by their faith when he finally heard news about how they were doing. It's almost like a parent when you're in the house with your kids and it gets too quiet, right? You know something crazy happening, right? 
Like, that's the most dangerous place to be because you got kids that you're normally chaotic and you hear quiet for too long. It's like, hold on. I don't hear nothing. What y'all doing up there? Right? And so Paul is checking in on this church after he hasn't heard anything for a while. And unlike most parents, when they finally find their kids, he actually finds them doing what he had told them to do. That's where we find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 1. Look with me. It says, additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul does three things as he opens this, ver- this chapter, the very first chapter where he begins to give instructions. The first three chapters, Paul spends some time really just uh, reminiscing on the nature of their relationship and talking about how encouraged he's been by their faith. And now he gets to the point where he begins giving some practical instruction to them. And he does three things. The first thing he does is he reminds them of the instructions that they received from him that came from God. We don't know what these instructions were. But we do know that whatever they were, the intention or the intended result that was to come of these instructions was a life that was lived pleasing to God and honoring of God, right? Not only that, but he commends them that the instructions he gave them, they were actually following. Thirdly, he says, even though you're following the instructions that I gave you, he commends them and exhorts them to keep doing it even more. He says, Don't get complacent just because you're living a life of obedience and you're setting a good example. Continue doing what you've been instructed even more. This is a church who's young in the faith, experiencing opposition, that are killing it for the gospel, killing it for the kingdom, experiencing a kingdom growth all around them because of their faith. And Paul says, don't get complacent in what you're doing. Do it even more. Right? That leads me to my first point. Only point. For our time today, and I'm going to be out your way, living a life that is pleasing to God requires God-inspired effort. Living a life that is pleasing to God requires God-inspired effort. Look with me at verse 3. It says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. Let's stop right there. God's will. What is God's will is something we talk about all the time. Like, what is the will of God? I'm going to help you out. There are some different elements on the will of God. There is God's necessary will and his free will, right? God's necessary will is everything that he must will according to his nature, meaning that God's eternality, God or God cannot cease to not be eternal because him being eternal is a part of his nature and it's who he is. So there is no way that God cannot be eternal. Does that make sense? Y'all, y'all quiet this morning. Y'all with me? Okay, all right, all right, I'm just checking. There's God's necessary will, and then there's God's free will. Those are all things that God has decided to will but had no necessity to will according to his nature, i.e. your salvation. God did not have to save you, but he decided to and did it just because. God's necessary will, God's free will. Then there's God's secret will and God's revealed will. God's secret will are those things which God has not revealed and go unknown by man where we are simply to trust him. That means when God is doing things behind the scene and he doesn't give you any indication of what you're doing and you got to slow down life and be frustrated because God's not moving at your pace, that's God's secret will where you just have to sit back and trust the promises of God. 
Well, you've got to spend some time in your word knowing what those promises of God are so you know what you're actually trusting. Then there's God's revealed will. This is where God's declared will concerning what we should do or what God has commanded us to do. That's where God makes it very explicit about what his intentions are, his expectations are for his people. So by the time we get here in verse 3 of chapter 4, it's very clear that we are dealing with God's revealed will as he begins to explain to his people what his expectations are for their sanctification. So he says, for this is the will of God or God's will for your life, your sanctification. Sanctification is the progressive work of God and man where he takes us or makes us more and more free from sin and more and more looking like Jesus in our actual lives. It is the work of God and man where he makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives, right? There are three stages of sanctification. Y'all with me? Okay, three stages of sanctification, right? The first stage of sanctification is that sanctification has a definite beginning at regeneration. That means the moment you trust Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ as Savior, sanctification be, begins, that process of being made more and more like Jesus. That means the moment sanctification begins, a definitive moral change begins, which means that practically what you think about everything should be submitted to what God thinks about everything. That's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, right? The wisdom of God and the foolishness of man. It was like, you need to now know what God thinks about money. You need to now know what God thinks about sex, what God thinks about friendships, what God thinks about savings, what God thinks about parenting. You need to know what God thinks because you cannot please God if you don't know how he thinks so that you should know how you should live. A moral beginning happens immediately at the beginning of salvation, which also lets us know that you can no longer call yourself a Christian if you are living unrepentantly in a pattern of sin. That means that I have the right as another believer to come to you and say, man, I'm, I'm witnessing the life that you're living, and it looks absolutely nothing like the life that's been defined to us by God's word. And guess what? It ain't judgment, right? Well, actually, let me say it is judgment. But guess what? The Bible says that you're supposed to do that judgment. As a Christian, you're allowed to judge one another. In Matthew chapter 5, when he's talking about judgment, he's talking about judging those outside of the church. Inside of the church, you are to bear much fruit. The fruit that looks like Galatians chapter 5, chapter 20, chapter, uh, verses 24 through 22. It's supposed to look like self-control and goodness and kindness and long-suffering and perseverance, which uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 uh, tells us has already been given to us for life and godliness. As a Christian, you've already been given every single thing that you need to live a life pleasing and honoring to the Lord. I know I'm getting off my point a little bit, but not only does it say that we should not be living in a continual pattern of sin, but it, it, it involves a definite break from the ruling power of sin. That means the minute you become a Christian, you can no longer say that sin is your master. You can no longer use the excuse that you can't stop sinning because sin it has rulership over you. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 says that as a believer, you don't have to sin anymore. You can say no to sin. That's why he says, if you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because they are opposed to one another. To walk by the spirit, I cannot walk by the flesh. 
to, one, to walk one direction categorically denies walking in the other direction. Walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. There are two things then that we can't say at the beginning of salvation, of the beginning of sanctification. You can't say that I am completely free from sin because that means that you're arrogant. Whoever says that he has not sinned is a liar and the truth is not in him. But not only that, it also means that you cannot say that sin has defeated me so there's no point in trying. Sanctification means that even though sin is still present in our lives, there's an expectation for the believer not to sin. Sanctification, number two, increases throughout your life, which means very simply, there should never be a time in your life as a Christian where you are not growing. There is no such thing as stagnation as a Christian. One of the things that you'll hear in marriage counseling oftentimes is if you're not growing closer together, you're growing further apart. The same applies in your relationship with the Lord. There is no stagnation where you plateau in your relationship with the Lord. Either you are growing closer to the Lord or you're growing further apart from him. The expectation for the believer, that's why the writer of Hebrews says, man, y'all should have been teachers by now. Why does he say that? Because there's an expectation that growth should happen. When you have a baby, they go to the doctor often. Why? Because there are certain milestones that the doctors are checking to see if their baby hits. And if they don't hit those milestones, a red flag comes up and they begin to investigate more. So as a, as a Christian, if I'm looking at your life and you're no longer growing and I don't see you hitting those milestones that the Bible has set in place, I'm, I'm beginning to investigate more to say, what is going on in your life that is keeping you from being able to grow in the way that God has ordained for you to grow based on your faith in him? You should always be growing. And then lastly, sanctification is completed at death when the Lord returns and gives us our new resurrected bodies. I like what Paul says when he says, I don't know what we're going to look like, but we're going to look like him. That's an encouragement because my natural sisters, you're going to be able to just wake up and not do nothing to your hair. You're going to be able to walk through the rain and not experience no types of shrinkage. I'm believing God with you that when I get my glorified body, my hair is going to come back. I'm going to be in shape. I don't know what it's going to be like, but all I know is it's going to be good. But even more than that, see this, even more than that, this body, this new body, when your sanctification has been made complete, you'll get to stand in his presence. You'll just get to be in his presence. Sanctification. I like what Wayne Grudem talks about as he talks about this idea of man cooperating with God in the role of sanctification. He says this. He says, I am simply concerned that if we say sanctification is entirely God's work, we can be misunderstood and encourage an excessively passive role on the part of Christians who may be led to think that they need to do nothing in the process of sanctification in their lives. It is important that we continue to grow both in our passive trust in God to sanctify us and in our active striving for holiness and greater obedience in our lives. If we neglect active striving to obey, we become passive, lazy Christians. If we neglect the passive role of trusting God and yielding to him, we become proud and overly confident in ourselves. In either case, our sanctification will be greatly deficient. We must maintain faith and diligence to obey at the same time, which means basically what he's saying is that role that we play in sanctification is both a passive one 
in which we depend on God to sanctify us, and it's an active one in which we strive to obey God and take steps that will increase our sanctification. Let me make it plain. This is that idea of what I call make every effort theology. There are two types of effort that God calls us to in his word. There's the effort of resistance and the effort of pursuit. The effort of resistance and the effort of pursuit. That's why he says to keep away or abstain from sexual immorality. Resistance. Verse 4, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Pursuit. Resist. Pursuit. I'll make it plain. Last night I was watching the Warriors and, and, and Rockets game. Right? How many of y'all, y'all, some of y'all watch that game? Most of y'all don't even care about basketball. It's fine. All right, whatever. I, I, you know, I love the Warriors. They're not my squad, though. I'm a Sixers fan. Trust the process. But I love watching the Warriors. And I love Steph Curry. I don't care what y'all say about him. I love, I love the little babyface assassin. You know, that's my man's. Right? But the, the reason I love Steph, man, is, is because he's just, he's smooth. One of the greatest shooters of all time. Like, I watched his pops, too. His pops was smooth. But um, last year sometime, there was a game. I forget what he's playing. He's coming down on a fast break. Crosses over half court, maybe like two steps. Like right after half court. Now, what, now y'all looking at me like that's not a big deal. Number one, you don't just pull up like half court and just drop it like it's nothing off a regular jump shot, right? What made this crazy was as soon as he released the ball, he turned around and started running back down court. And then it went in. Now, you got to be cocky to do that. Like, you got to be cocky and confident to do that. But I seen it, and I was going crazy. Like, yo, yo, you see that? Yo, that was so crazy, bro. And so what happened was now I try to do it when I'm playing ball with the balls, right? So we go to the gym, and I'm trying to do it, you know, and, and I haven't had success yet, but one day I'm going to be able to do it, right? And so, you know, I'll, I'll cross half court, come across half court, fast break, bang. nothing, bang. Yeah, that's what's exactly what you hear, bang. <laughs> and they looking at me like, yeah, for real, Kurt? Like, for real, you just going to ruin the game like this? I'm like, man, I'm just Steph, bro. Like, but, 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 but here's, what, here's what happens, man. Now, now watch, watch this. The reason that I can't replicate what Steph Curry does is because I haven't trained and I haven't practiced. I haven't trained and I haven't practiced. Now, training is the method by which you get your body and your mind prepared to play. So an NBA athlete, they have to do strenuous training not before they even pick up a basketball. So they got to run wind sprints and suicides to get their cardio up. They got to lift weights to get their muscles right. They have to get their mind prepared to overcome the fatigue of their body. So they have to go through a period of training before they're even ready to step on the court. However, if I do all the training in the world and step on the court and face opposition, I won't be prepared because I've never practiced what I've trained. See, practice is putting your training in game-like situations before the game actually starts. That way, when I get on the court, I know how to break a trap when I've never experienced that. If I get into the game and the team starts trapping me and I've never prepared for that, then I'm going to be in a whole lot of trouble. See, the problem with us as Christians is we do no practicing but even less training there are so many of us who have not trained by spending time in God's word 
understanding what his word says. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against it. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? Most of us don't even know how to train because we don't even know God's word. And better yet, we can't practice because we're too lazy to actually apply the things that we have read. See, when we get into God's word and learn what God's word says, then we have to do the hard work of applying what God's word says before opposition comes. That means, married husband, that you need to learn how to uh, uh, have a conversation with your wife in the midst of confrontation when you guys are about to argue, but do it in a way that's love and respectful so that way when arguing does come up, you know how to respond well. You can apply a Proverbs 15.1. A harsh word turns away anger. A, 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 a soft word turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. You, you can begin applying the one another's and applying a lack of selfish, selfishness when you read 1 Corinthians 13.4 where it says that, that love does not insist upon its own way. Well, you know what? If you've never practiced that when there was no spotlight on you, I can guarantee you're going to fail when the heat gets turned up. Training and practice. One of the greatest crimes of the Christian church is that we have to stop thinking that God is okay with lazy Christianity, where we think that we're just going to roll out of bed and become a mature Christian, where we think that our association of being near those who are mature is going to make us more mature. That it's just enough to get up and do a little five-minute devotional and then throw it aside as if you're going to categorically just be a Christian at some points and not at other points. Training and practice. One of the funniest things about this passage of Scripture, though, when I first kind of read through it, was that Paul here is talking to a group of people who were killing it for the gospel. I mean, they're killing it. Like, their reputation precedes them. Their reputation is so dope that people are getting saved because of them, right? And yet, for this group of Christians that's killing it for the kingdom, Paul still has to remind them to live lives of sexual purity. That should let you know right there just what God thinks about your sexual activity, about your sexual interactions, about how you think about sex, that the church that's probably killing it the most in Scripture at this point has to be reminded to remain sexually pure. He says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, or that word porneia is where we get our word pornography from. It's a general term for nearly any type of sexual sin, including prostitution, adultery, fornication, sexual fantasies, watching pornography, self-pleasure, and and I'll just say things like these, because I know some of you are going to leave out this door and say, well, Pastor Kurt didn't say my, you know, my sin of preference, so I, you know, I might be good. So I'll just add on what Paul says in Galatians 5.21 and things like these. I like what one commentary says. It says, various kinds of unsanctioned sexual behavior. He says to keep away that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and an honor. Holiness and an honor. Holiness is a conformity to God's character. It implies a knowledge of God. Honor 
is respect for the opinion, concern, and the well-being of others, and it's primarily other-centered. So here, self-control for God's people is directly tied to their holiness, God-centered, and their honor, other-centered. He said the the, the way that the self-controlled life of the believer is characterized is by a knowledge of being God-centered in their holiness and other-centered in their practice. That means that you are to love God holy and love your neighbor honor. Love God holy and love your neighbor honor. I, I, I like what one commentary says. It's this idea that sexual activity is not an inconsequential private activity between consenting adults, right? Look at what it says. It says, while the term holiness itself is broad enough to encompass the full range of Christian behavior, Paul focuses on a single aspect of what it entails, namely sexual immorality. This topic would have been of particular significance for anyone recently converted from a, a pagan culture in view of the wide range of sexual norms and practices that existed in Greco Roman society. Sexual fidelity was demanded of wives and in some circles upheld as a virtue in husbands. At the same time, however, a wide range of pre and extramarital activity was tolerated and even occasionally encouraged. Thus, it could not be assumed that converts brought with them into the church any common understanding or expectation regarding sexual behavior. This was an area where socialization into the norms of the new community was definitely a necessity. He goes on to say, Paul's strategy for de developing a common sexual ethic is worth noting. What Paul offers to people coming from widely different backgrounds is an ethic based on the one things that he knows they share in common. And that's a relationship with the one true God. In other words, what they, have al what they already have in common becomes the starting point for where they should begin to think, to develop a common understanding for God's view of sex. Essentially what he's saying is that everyone in this room comes from a different background, with different experiences, with different understandings of the way that God works and what God's expectations are. And just because you come into the church, it doesn't now mean that we are all unified in our thinking. So what he's saying is that there are believers in the church that have different expectations and understandings of what God's expectation for sex is, which means that we have to have a common sexual ethic of understanding to know what God has expected and told us and created sex for and given it purpose for. Does that make sense? That means when we talk about holiness and honor and self-control, that sex has always been a community issue. Sex has always been a community issue. I know you're, you're like, Pastor Kurt, how can that be? Where does it say that in the Bible? Well, when, when virgins got married, when they consummated the marriage with their husband, the community would wait outside. And the husband would have to take the sheet that they, that they consummated the marriage on and hand it out the window to the elders of the city so that they could expect the sheet to make sure that she was indeed a virgin, right? That lets us know that your sexuality is a reflection upon the rest of the community. So when you get out here wilding in the streets with your sexual life, it's not just a reflection upon you and upon God. It's a reflection upon me. Because now they look at Christians out here with no sexual distinctions, wilding and acting like the rest of the world, and what you do, they see, and now they think that all of Christianity is like that. Your sexuality 
is a community issue. It's not just about you. Sexual misconduct involves both a breakdown of the ethical standards that distinguish the Christian community from outsiders and is a significant threat to the kinship and unity within the community. Look what he says in verse, in verse 6. He says, this means that one must not sin against, transgress, or take advantage of a brother or a sister. So this, the expectation is the same for both men and women. They should not take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, which we had previously told you and warned you. And so when we, when we engage in sexual behavior that doesn't align with the way God intended for it to be, not only does it not distinguish us and make us distinct among the world, but it also breaks the fellowship and the unity that we're supposed to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. It, 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 it causes dysfunction in the family. That's why there's so much gross misconduct and the, the reputation of the church is so poor because we have so many people in the church just sleeping around like there should be no difference or distinction between God's people. Imagine how difficult it is when you sleep around and act like the world in the church and the division that it causes amongst your brothers and sisters. The gossip that now ensues. The distrust that breeds itself. The bitterness that comes up in relationships. The factions that are now formed. All because there is not a sexual ethic of holiness and honor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's the working assumption between this entire passage is that the minute you become a Christian, you now have the responsibility to honor God with your body. Your sexual life and conduct is a matter of devotion and discipleship. Devotion and discipleship. And, 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 and listen, we, we can read a text like this and be like, well, man, the, the Bible talks a lot about sex, which it does. Man, the Bible talks a lot about sex and money, right? It's crazy. Like you talk, you deal with the world. The world talks about a lot about sex and money too. And the Bible talks a lot about sex and money, and yet the church doesn't talk a lot about sex and money. The Bible talks about it. The world talks about it. The middleman, the church, doesn't talk about it. And listen, I, I, sermons like this are hard because I know we, all, most of us, if not all of us, have pasts. And I'm not even going to say past, but have presence. If we're honest, we got presence right now that we're dealing with in this room. I ain't talking about 10 years ago testimony. I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about last night you came in crying because you done did some stuff this weekend and you were ashamed to come before the presence of God in church. We got some stuff. But listen, this is the beautiful thing about the Bible. It's the, Bible the Bible shares with us some stories of some ratchet people in the text, right? I, I, we can talk about Abraham and Sarah and their impatience with God waiting on his promises. And they, they brought in Hagar to be a part of some threesome where they could now uh, utilize her to bring about the promises of God. And then when they got tired of her, they kicked her and her baby son out and left them to die. And then you see God show up. And he, 
she calls him Elroy, the God who sees me. Despite the sexual dysfunction that I have experienced with Abraham and Sarah, and not only did God show up for her, God showed up for them because he did not withhold the promise he had already made to them. I could stop there. I could tell you about this prostitute named Rahab who was flaunting herself all over the city to all types of men until she saw God's people come inspecting the land and said, man, I fear this God of Israel so much that I'm going to help them. And guess what God did for this prostitute? He allowed the Messiah, Jesus, who was, is the Christ, the long-awaited one to come through the line of a prostitute. Can you imagine that? The same Jesus that we talk about who went to the cross and died for the sins of the world came through the line of a prostitute woman? I could stop there or I could talk about David, her great-great-grandson, a, a man after God's own heart, who took one of his soldier's wives and slept with her and got her pregnant and then tried to trick him into believing that the baby was his and when he couldn't do it, had him killed and then tried to act like nothing ever happened until God showed up on his doorstep and confronted him and said, David, you are the man. And the Bible still says that he's a man after God's own heart. We could stop there. Or I could talk about the woman at the well where Jesus says, this husband, this husband that you're with is not your husband and he's only like the four or five ones, the fifth one that you've been with or the adulterous woman that they brought before Jesus the stoner and Jesus says how many of you have sinned and can cast the first stone I'm trying to tell you today even if you've had some sexually explicit uh, uh, experiences even if you're not where God wants you to be right now if you've come in here broken and ashamed and your sexual activity has been filled with dysfunction and disobedience I'm telling you right now God wants to redeem your story He wants to redeem your story. There is nothing that you've done that can take you too far from the hand of God. But listen to me. Listen to me. He's not going to do it without you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for your word. We're thankful because your word brings healing. We're thankful because your word gives us peace. I can stand up here and preach this knowing that I, I was the chief among sinners. I know what type of activity I was engaged in. And so the very fact that you would desire to use me now is mind-blowing. None of us deserve to be in your presence. None of us deserve to be used by you. None of us deserve to be loved by you. But you are such an awesome God that you would redeem us, that you would restore us that you would reconcile us. That's the testimony of the salvation that God offers, that he would use broken, unusable, irredeemable people to spread the message of the gospel. Father, would you use us this day? Would you use us, God, to go out into the world, not all haughty, as if we all have it together, but as broken people declaring the love of a God who makes us whole. Father, we stand before you just thankful. Sometimes the greatest thing that we can do, the greatest praise that we can offer is thank you. 
And so, Father, we come before you, standing before your throne with confidence, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we declare with tears in our eyes, hands lifted, that we are thankful.